0: This last summer, um, we preached through some wisdom literature. And so one of the passages that I had the opportunity to preach was Psalm 23. And what really stood out to me is, obviously, that, that what's known about it, the Lord is our shepherd. We don't have want, that we follow Him. He's our shepherd. He leads us. We're His sheep. But what stood out is is this shepherd leads us sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. We didn't just end up there. We're following our shepherd. Sometimes he takes us places we don't think we should be going. Sometimes it's challenging to follow him. And so I I asked the question, How are you? And I also asked the question, Are you faithfully following? Not as just you're supposed to say what church people say, but that you would really examine your heart, that we'd really take a moment to breathe. Where are we? You know, maybe better question than, How are you is where are we? That's what God said to Adam and Eve when they sinned. He said, where are you? Obviously, He knew where they were. He wasn't asking for their physical location, but where are we? And that goes in perfectly to what we're going to be talking about today. I've come out here desiring to encourage you. I want you to be filled with life. I want you to leave this space and be excited about the mission before you to bring the Gospel to people who need the Gospel, to bring hope to the hopeless, to see the brokenhearted have their hearts restored. And we know only Jesus can do that, so we bring Jesus with us when we go. I met with Ryan for lunch a couple weeks ago because I knew I'd be coming out here and I just said, tell me about your people. Tell me who is the church out here in this strange place far from where I live. God has a plan. He's positioned you with a purpose. He, he knows where you are because He led you here. Never for a second has God lost control. I want to, I want to consider the story of Jonah, as you, as you were told, Jonah chapter two specifically. Uh, and I don't have time to, to get into the historical background and, and the context to pick it all apart. If we had a few weeks, then we could do more of that. But I think what comes out of chapter two is very important for us this morning. And it's encouragement to me as, as my family is looking to be sent out of the crossing church as church planters in The southern part of the city of Dallas it's a challenge that is something it's a long story how we got there but it's a challenge for me in many ways I like the comforts of where we are I like knowing what tomorrow holds and there's a lot of mystery ahead of us so as I prepared this message for you I was certainly blessed by it and I hope that it's an encouragement to you Uh, so the story of Jonah is a familiar one uh, and it's also unbelievable if we're honest And by that I mean it's impossible. Like there's no way, right? There's no way a man can survive inside of a fish. It's impossible. But the the literary form of this book is is a historic prophetic narrative. So a historic prophetic narrative means a few things. First of all, it's history. It actually happened. People reference it by naming the guy Jonah. It's not like there was a good Samaritan, that's a parable. Jesus references the story of Jonah as if it were real, like the people, the characters. Nineveh was a real place. They actually had need. There were sinners who needed a Savior. So Jonah was sent on a mission that was real. We have every reason to believe it's historically true. Also, Jonah is a prophet. He proclaims truth to a people who need to hear the truth sent by God. And so it's a prophetic thing, not just applicable to Nineveh, but to us today, going throughout history, throughout time, Connecting to the people of God today, the truth that we find in this book is relevant and applicable to us. And it's a story. It's a narrative. So there's characters and there's a plot and and there's confusion and then there's resolution and then maybe not so much resolution. If you know the book, Jonah didn't... He's not necessarily a hero. We'll just say that. But like Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel, these crazy stories from the Old Testament, Jonah's a prophet and his story is true. And so we have to come to a place where we say, yes, it's impossible. It's beyond nature. But that's what makes it supernatural. That's that's why it's a miracle. So don't wrestle too much with the craziness of the book. When believers find impossible things in Scripture, it doesn't have to leave us doubting. It it draws us in. It leaves us in awe of a God who does impossible things. So we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how exactly it happened. Was he just in the mouth of a whale and there was air in there so he could breathe or what? Let's just say he's in the guts of a fish where it's impossible for a man to survive. But the God of all creation made it possible. And then let's try and draw out some truth for us this morning. We're going to read what's right in between. So obviously chapter 2 is in between chapter 1 and 3, but it's actually per the verse, in between chapter 1, verse 17, that says, And the Lord anointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then chapter 2, verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. These two verses along with chapter 2, verse 1 are literally the only places in the entire book that reference this fish. Yet, for some reason, when we talk about Jonah, it's always Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the big fish. So let's get this out of the way. This story is not about a fish. It's not about a whale. And despite the fact that the book's named Jonah, it's not even about Jonah. God is the main character of the story. The big takeaway from Jonah is that we have a merciful and sovereign God who controls everything. Even if we try and run away, He's going to get us where we need to be. It may be crazy getting us there, but God gets us where He's called us to be. And He does it with purpose. The Ninevites needed the Gospel. They needed the good news. They needed to hear of this God. And He is the one acting and working behind the scenes and implicitly and explicitly. He is the one who brings about His will through His people. He knows what ought to be and He knows exactly what brings it about. He's sovereign and he's good. So, if you can connect with the man and the fish, perhaps you know what it feels like to be at the bottom. Maybe you know pain. Maybe you know suffering. Maybe you know rebellion. Maybe your life's been hard. Can we just be honest sometimes? Life's not always easy. And as we look at Jonah, specifically chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we're going to find a poem, it's a prayer. It's a reflection it's in past tense Jonah's reflecting on what has just happened from the belly of a fish he's thinking about his rescue God just saved him from death and our sovereign God is merciful to us as well so if you if you can get there with me imagine sinking in the waves of a storm struggling to stay afloat and the storm overtakes you and you sink to the bottom of the sea, imagine what you would feel. Imagine the fear Jonah must have felt thinking death is for sure. There's no way out of this. We don't don't see this happen in the story explicitly, but we know it happened because of what's about to happen in chapter 2. Jonah knows his death is certain. Let's read it. And if you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm reading the ESV. I'm going to read straight through, but I'm going to pause a couple of times to offer some commentary. Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish or whale or sea monster. It doesn't really matter. It points to Jonah finally turning to God. And he says in verse 2 I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is not the name of the fish. Sheol is the Hebrew word for, for the underworld. It's, it's the, the valley of death. It's, it's the home of death. It's the graveyard. So he's acknowledging his certain death, and from there he cries out, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He sees he deserves death and he's getting death. And all of it's under God's control. Don't miss the pronouns here. For you cast me into the deep. Who threw him in the water? Was it the sailors? Well, Jonah's given credit to God. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. Whose floods? Your waves, your billows passed over me. It all belongs to God. It's all in His control. And he goes on, verse 4. Then he said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So though death is certain, he knows where he's going. Verse 5, The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's poetry. He's hopelessly, sinking to the bottom of the sea where the base of the mountains are. It's like a prison of death closing in around him. There's no escaping it. I want you to feel it, not just hear it. Feel what Jonah might be feeling. Yet you, God, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to You into your holy temple. So don't miss while in the belly of the fish, he's reflecting back on what has happened. He was in the sea, going to death. While in the fish, Jonah's prayer isn't, get me out of this fish. He's not He's not even afraid anymore. He's not saying, I can't believe I'm in the guts of this fish. It's disgusting in here. God, get me out of this. Instead, his prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. Because... He's been saved. He's not asking to be saved from the fish. He's praising God that the fish saved him from the sea. Because he knows God sent the fish. And then he stops reflecting and he moves on to a revelation that he's just had. In verses 8 and 9, we're in present tense now. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is a prophet speaking. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is Jonah's takeaway, so I think it should be ours as well. Repentance happens here in these two verses. There's heart change. This Jonah that was rebellious, if you know the story, Jonah was called to bring the Gospel to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. They're an evil people. They're against the people of God. Why would he go there? So he gets in a boat and he goes to Tarshish instead, the opposite direction. A storm comes about. The sailors are trying to figure out what's going on. They're pagan sailors, so they're rolling dice, casting lots, trying to get the gods to tell them why is this storm happening? And Jonah's in the belly of the boat sleeping. And he wakes up and he goes to the top and he tells them, I know why the storm's here. I'm running from God, the God of all creation. If you cast me into the sea, he'll stop the storm. And so, they do it. He sinks. He's in the fish. The storm stops. And he voices this prayer that we've just read. So Jonah, this rebellious prophet, this runaway, has come to a point where he realizes he can't run from God. He's humbled. His heart is being changed. And he then commits himself in verse 9 to do what He says He'll do. He commits Himself to be the prophet He's called to be. He commits Himself to the mission and will of God because He knows He has no other choice. The God of all creation has called Him to something. He's going to equip Him to do it and He's going to send Him to do it. And He acknowledges the Lord is the owner of salvation. He doesn't get to decide who gets to be saved and who doesn't. God of salvation does that. And then in verse 10, what has just happened in verse 8 and 9 brings us to what happens in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. I think the word choice there is provocative intentionally. Vomited is not a pleasant thing. A fish just vomited, this is the Bible's word, a man onto the land. It's almost like the fish was disgusted with the rebellion of Jonah. And what we know if you continue to read the book of Jonah is his heart changed to see God's in control of all things. and He doesn't get a say in it. But he didn't completely change because he reaches a point in chapter 4 where he's regretting what has just happened in chapter 3. God calls him to Nineveh a second time and he goes this time and he brings the Gospel and God saves the people of Nineveh because they repent. And Jonah's then mad about it. God, I knew You were going to save him. He starts complaining that God saved people. So maybe that's why this fish pukes him out. I don't know. It's conjecture. So don't write it in your notes. But for certain, we see one thing's clear. God has you, just as He has Jonah, exactly where He ought to be. He never lost control. And even if things aren't what He thought they would be, even if things aren't what we thought they would be, God still has a plan. So how should we respond to this reality? It's a good question. First point is pretty straightforward. Just like Jonah, we cry out to Jesus. In times that are difficult, in times that are confusing, where there's not understanding, we know that we have a God who gives peace that surpasses understanding. We know we have a God who leads us on the right path even when we aren't able to lean on our own understanding. We trust Him. We keep stepping forward in the direction He's called us to step. So the first point is cry out to Him. Ask Him for clarity. Ask Him to save us. Sometimes we have to be willing to, to brave the storm. And sometimes God stops the storm. Sometimes He throws us into it. Whatever the case, He's in control. How does that make you feel? If I'm honest, it makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel weak. It makes me feel powerless and needy. And, and those are the things that are true about me. And so it's okay to feel those things. It's okay to say you're needy. In fact, we need Jesus. We have all that we need to know Him intimately as a Savior. Because all that we actually need is that need. God's given us what we need to need Him. The problem is we don't like to admit that we're needy. We want to act like we know what we're doing when we don't. We want to act like we've got things under control when in reality, we don't. We want to act like everything's good when we're hurting. So I hope you feel free to cry out to Jesus in honesty and tell Him when you're needy. Tell him when you're hurt. Because he already knows. It reminds me of the story story of Bartimaeus, the blind beggar in Mark chapter 10. Perhaps you're familiar with this guy who sits outside of Jericho because in in their culture, you don't get to belong to society if if you're an unclean person. If you're on the margins, it's because you deserve it according to their cultural status. He's at the bottom of the culture. A blind beggar. He's homeless. He sits on the outside of the city and he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's making this journey from Galilee back to Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, hears about it. And so as the crowd's gathering, following Jesus on this journey, it's loud and Bartimaeus is on the ground with his cloak laid out as beggars do, wanting something from people because that's his only means of survival. And he cries out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, in verse 47 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And through the crowd, Jesus hears him. Though they're trying to quiet him down, he doesn't have time for you. Mind your business. Jesus hears him and He calls to him and says, bring him to Me. So Bartimaeus throws off his cloak and he runs to Jesus. Now remember, this is his home. This is his livelihood. He's laying down. He's sacrificing everything he knows as safety and security. A blind man running to Jesus. And he goes before Him and Jesus asks this question that I can't even imagine what it would be like to hear the Savior of the world ask me What do you want from me? Don't hear it as a what do you want from me. Hear it as compassion. Because no one else in the society is asking this man that. Jesus, the Savior, the the ruler, the King of all kings says to this man, what do you want from me? So Bartimaeus asks for his sight. He says, I want to see. Now keep in mind, when Jesus asks questions, He already knows the answers. He already knows what's going to happen. But He's providing this opportunity for this man who doesn't have a voice to voice his need. And He says, I want to see. In verse 52, Jesus says to him, go away. Your faith has made you well. Of course, Bartimaeus doesn't just go away. He stays with Jesus. He becomes attached to this man who's just given Him His sight. But I don't want to miss the point of this story in connection to our story of Jonah. He tells him to go on his way for your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. To be made well. In the Greek, this this term made well is sozo, to be healed. But it's also the word we use and it's often translated to be saved. It's Where we get the study of salvation in theology. It's soteriology. So, it could be translated, depending on the context, either healed, or made well in this case, or saved. I think that's important because it's an intentional double entendre. Jesus knows what He's saying. Bartimaeus asks for sight, and Jesus says, you're so-so. You're made well. You're healed. You're saved. And it's significant because Bartimaeus wants to see. And because he believed, while at the bottom of society, while desperate and needy, very aware of his neediness, being vulnerable and honest about it, crying out to the one he believes can and will restore his sight. He cries out to Jesus. And he asks to see. And Jesus saves him. Because he had faith. Because he believed. So here's what's true for us. We may think we need to see, and we do. We may think we need to get out of our circumstances, and we do. We may be in the belly of a fish. But our prayer is with the heart of thanksgiving, praising the God of salvation. Not just the God who can fix our situation. Not just the God who can make us happy or comfortable or whatever it is we think we need. What we actually need is what Jesus has to offer us. Salvation. He's come to save us. He's done everything necessary to save us. He did that for Jonah. He did that for Bartimaeus. He's done that for us. So when we cry out, cry out for salvation, and that may look like justification for some. Perhaps some of you don't know Jesus at all and you need salvation from your destiny hell. The wrath of God is due for everyone who's unrepented and has no faith at all. So perhaps your cry needs to be, Jesus, save me from eternity in hell away from You. And some of us know Jesus well. We just spiral into these fits of anxiety and fear. We just suffer in this world. The suffering that's promised to us. And our salvation is this work of sanctification and sanctification always, always hurts. It's always difficult. It doesn't come easily. And we cry out for that work to not be in vain. The suffering has purpose. Being thrown into the storm has purpose. It changes us just as it changed Jonah. So I want to come back to Jonah. What was he supposed to be doing? He was supposed to be on the mission of God in Nineveh, he was supposed to be following in obedience. Now, God got him there, but he had to be humbled first. So remember, the stories about God, not about Jonah. And in no way is Jonah a hero. God is the hero of the story. So we see great power and we see great mercy in this story. It shows us who we are by shining light on who God is. So we call it Jonah in the well or Jonah in the big fish, but maybe we should call it Jonah in the big God. Jonah in the big Gospel. It's a call for us to believe the Gospel. For Jonah to believe. For Nineveh to believe. For for us to believe. The problem isn't what you know. You know God's great, right? You know He's sovereign. You know He's good and He's faithful. But do you believe it? In times in your life when it's hard to believe, will you believe it? When He's leading you into the valley of the shadow of death, will you follow Him because you trust He's good, and He's merciful, and He's great. And even if it gets dark down at the depths of the bottom of the sea, when darkness seems to be winning, do you believe He's the light of the world who will cast out darkness and fear and anxiety? Do you think the truth of Christ is reality or is it just paper in your Bible? Is He really saving you through the suffering? Do we believe His Gospel? These, these two verses at the end of this chapter, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This steadfast love. Hebrews Hebrew has said, the steadfast love is this lasting faithfulness that never runs out because it's birthed out of love that has always been God who is love. This faithfulness He has gives us hope And those who worship idols, those who are carrying with them their own kingdoms rather than the kingdom of God, working to build it for yourself instead of faithfully following Him and building His kingdom, those who are carrying these vain idols are forsaking the hope we have in this steadfast love. That's the revelation Jonah has. In verse 9, but we can join Jonah with a voice of thanksgiving, sacrificing those things vowing to live on this mission God has called us to. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Both the salvation of all those who would hear the gospel we proclaim and our own salvation being worked out day by day as we submit ourselves again and again, no matter what the world brings against us, no matter what Satan brings against us, no matter what our flesh has to say against us, the enemy loses. God always wins. And that right belief changes us. So don't, don't think that Jonah was changed because he was obedient. Jonah was obedient because he was changed. So we don't come back to what are the rules for us to follow. We come back to what is the Gospel for us to believe. And we're changed by that Gospel. We're made new by that Gospel. We're brought to repentance by that Gospel. And we faithfully follow the calling of God on our lives. And so I know that this church even though I just met some of you today, I know that this church has a mission. Wherever you feel like you are, perhaps you're not where you thought you would be. Maybe it's not what 2020 was supposed to be in your head. But this is where we are. And you know where you are individually, even if you're not honest with anyone else. God knows where you are. So individually and corporately, you're exactly where you need to be. God has a plan. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Here's what's required of us. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's what Jonah was experiencing. He was trying to save his own life running away. And he almost lost it because of it. And when he came to realize my path is one of sacrifice, following the God who's called me on this mission, when he realized that, only then was he vomited out onto dry land. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Man Overboard about Jonah. He comments on the brokenness of Jonah in chapter two, the, the humble prophet, he calls him, hears the second calling to Nineveh, and he obeys. So Sinclair Ferguson writes about why exactly that might have happened, and he says in his book: God intends to bring life out of death. We may well think that this, we may well think of this as a principle behind all evangelism. It is out of Christ's weakness that the sufficiency of His saving power will be born. It is when we come to share spiritually and occasionally physically on Christ's death that we experience the power He has demonstrated in weakness to draw others to Him. This is exactly what happened to Jonah." End quote. In Philippians chapter 10, the apostle Paul, who experienced his own amount of suffering in life, you may recall, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, the power of his resurrection, and may share in the suffering, becoming like him in his death. It seems evident to me that suffering is a part of this journey. We know God's goodness through pain. So are you willing to suffer the loss of the things you hold on to, the idols, the comforts, are you, are you willing to suffer the loss of those things as God strips them away from you? Even if it means going into a storm and sinking to the depths of the sea, He removes those idols to humble you and, and loose their grip on your heart in order to save you. Do you believe it? Are you willing to walk that path? Because that's what we're called to, church. Similarly, the, the pastor, theologian, author Tim Keller writes about Jonah, and he says, unless something comes into your life that breaks you of your self-righteousness and pride, you may say you believe the Gospel of grace, but you aren't actually a sign of the Gospel yourself. You don't have the Jonah principle working in you. You aren't a strength out of weakness person. God will have to bring you low if He's going to use you on this mission this is what I want you to come away with. There's hope for you to have peace and joy. But it doesn't end there. Once you realize what God has given you, the joy of your salvation, once you really believe it, it compels you onto mission. It forces you out of these doors into the doors of your neighbors to bring truth, to bring life, to bring hope that you have found in Christ. This is what it means to say someone who experiences reconciliation then becomes a minister of reconciliation. Every believer is a minister of reconciliation. Not just the ministers of the church. Every disciple of Christ makes disciples. Not just the ministers of the church. If you're a believer, this is your mission. You've been called to Nineveh. Downsville, Calhoun, West Monroe, wherever you call home. God's called you there. He's placed you there. He's put this church exactly where it is in the middle of nowhere because there's people out here in the middle of nowhere. And they need Jesus just like you need Jesus. I think it's safe to assume our life experiences are going to take us many different directions. We're going to experience all kinds of suffering. But I have no doubt you have exactly what you need for all that would come your way. Because you've been equipped by the God who knows what you need. You have leaders in this church that are a gift to this church. You have elders and deacons, servants of this body who want to see you strong and healthy so that you can be about this mission. You, as a believer, are gifted by the Spirit of the living God He dwells within you. And you have gifts and ability that adds to the health of this body. When you're weak, the body's weak. So it's imperative you stay healthy. Depend on each other. Feed each other. Charge each other up. Show up here on Sunday mornings to be fed this truth again and again because you have a mission. Not because you you need to be fat-headed. It's not about what knowledge you can obtain. It's not about how good you can feel. There's a mission. You need one another. And every member is a member of this body with a purpose. Now Jonah went down for three days in that fish. In the belly of the fish, in certain death, he was there three days. And then he arose. Sound familiar? Except for he was vomited out. Jesus. Rather than throw us into the storm, Jesus. Jesus. Through Himself into death. He gave Himself for us. Swallowed by death, God of creation, became a man and hung on a cross and died for us and for this mission. Death didn't have the final word with Jesus either. Jesus conquered sin and death, leaving it in the grave. He rose victoriously and has since been at work building His kingdom through His people, the body of Christ. We are a part of that mission. What great joy there is being a part of that mission. So yes, there may be suffering along the way, but the suffering's not in vain. Every affliction is momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. There's great hope in the steadfast love. There's great hope. Let's not lose sight of this. There's a mission, but there's great hope for us through the storm, through the suffering. There's hope for what's to come. He has done everything necessary to save us, to sustain us, and not only free us from condemnation, but free us to the mission of God. And if you know Him, if you've experienced the goodness of His grace, you follow in obedience to bring that love to everyone. So, if you ask Him to use you, You better be ready for whatever that brings. Sometimes it's hard. It's it's not ever meant to be easy. He told us there'd be suffering. But He'll take us there. He takes us where we need to be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your gospel. I'm grateful for the hope we find in you. I pray for the people of Ald's Chapel. And so I pray the word spoken this morning would be received well as a brother in Christ leading a people to believe what's true. Freeing us all because that's what truth does. Let us see clearly the mission before us and go boldly into it knowing that You're always faithful even when we're not. In Jesus' name, Amen. guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So His blood is on your hands if you drink this in an unworthy manner. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So take a moment as you receive the elements and reflect on these words. Search your heart and repent. And when it's time, we'll take it together. So, showing the saints of old, believers throughout history have been taking of this meal, remembering the Savior. 1 Corinthians 11 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for which I give to you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Eat and remember. In the same way, He took the cup. If you'd please come. And this evening in the upper room, as they awaited the inevitable, the sacrifice of Christ, He passed a common cup as a symbol of His blood poured out. A blood that washes away sins. A blood that restores brokenness. The things that would await the disciples are things they couldn't imagine. So in the same conversation before partaking in this meal, He told them that suffering would come. He told them that the Spirit of God would be with them and they had every reason to be hopeful. And He ended this speaking clearly to them. For the first time, remember Jesus spoke in parables. For the first time, speaking clearly to them, He said, you have hope because I've overcome the world. So this symbol, though, it can be a somber thing because it reminds us of the sacrifice necessary. It's also a thing for us to rejoice in. That's also why wine isn't just used at communion. it's It's a drink at parties. It's a drink at wedding feasts. It's pointing us to something to come. It's a living drink. Because our Savior, though crucified, is now living. So reflect. Repent. And don't just be sad about this. Celebrate. So He took the cup and He said after supper, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Drink and remember. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So Lord, please come. Return to Your people. Save us from ourselves. Save us from the suffering once and for all. Until you do, we will faithfully follow, even into the storms, because you know we know you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.